Ooh-wee. Welcome oh, yeah. to the Carl Landry Record Club. Hi, Mootloo. Hello. That's, That's something new I'm trying. <laughs> oh, really? Is that your new thing? <laughs> Not re- I mean, okay. just now I decided okay. it might be. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if Hello. you're... Hello. Hello. We are the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. We do celebrate music, recommend music, learn about music by talking about two albums every single week. One that we pick, Mootloo or I, one that you pick. For in a, a number of different ways that you can suggest an album. People, I've always, I think it is interesting. I, I actually do understand the idea of hearing two people talk about an album that you like that maybe they have never even heard before. So, um, and we are careful. This is not really review. Won't hardly ever say anything bad. The, the goal is to hear something, hear something you like about it and, you know, what's different about it, why somebody else might like it. So I always uh, feel like it's like trying to uh, unlock the magic, you know? Yes. Of what yeah. makes something special. Even if it's something that we wouldn't ordinarily listen to or not necessarily, it's not necessarily in our wheelhouse, but just trying to understand what makes it click, what makes it resonate with people rather than I think that's what makes us unique, actually, because we're not really doing reviews. It's not criticism. No, no. It's analysis, maybe. Yeah, some analysis and some... The, the thing I think about is somebody likes, likes this album enough to say, I'm going to go on the internet and I'm going to tell these two strangers that <laughs> exactly. I love this album. We're not, you know, strangers to you, the listener, in a, in a, you know, a different kind of way, not a complete stranger. You know a lot about us. We maybe don't know so much about you, but I'm going to suggest this to two people that I don't know personally so I can hear them talk about it. That's meaningful. So whatever we think about the album, it has connected in a meaningful way to you and uh, sort of explore what that album might mean to us and what it might mean to you. So there are several ways to get us an album. And people are now suggesting them all the different ways. If you follow us on social, just go to the profile and there's a link tree thing to suggest there. You can go to our website, carlandrewrecordclub.com. On Spotify, underneath the pod, you can see a thing, suggest an album for the next podcast. And in the Apple podcast reviews, where today's comes from, leave us a five-star rating, leave us a review, and in your review, leave the album that you would like to hear. We've also started coming up with, in an effort to not pick every piece of music from the 90s, Uh, pick out a single or a song that we like that is new or new-ish that we heard and, uh, and share, that, share that as well. So the two albums today, it is my week. So my pick is George Michael's Listen Without Prejudice, volume one. Oh, yeah. Which came oh, out. Yeah. yeah, I knew you were going to like it. Yeah, this is. <laughs> how have we, I got to say, how have we not discussed George Michael? George Michael. Yeah, one of my all time favorites. And, I, and honestly, we'll get into this. Looking at his, his library, just such a, a remarkably high and short peak, you right. know, he did. And there was never a Listen Without Prejudice Volume 2. There was supposed to be. There was never. Anyway, we'll get into that. The, my single pick is from Your Old Droog. With uh, produced by Madlib, who oh, we yeah. have we have spoken you about. You knew I would like that too. Yep, yep. <laughs> and that song is called Pronouns. And then the listener pick came from the Apple Podcast Reviews. The username is Allison Chains nineteen ninety four. Love not, it. Love not it. a not too 
not too suspicious as to why they would enjoy the podcast, but <laughs> the, the five-star review, thank you, five-star rating, love you guys. As a musician, it's great finally listening to some music analyzers who actually know what they're talking about. I would love to hear your take on the 2000 album, White Pony by Deftones. It's just an incredible album that totally defined the alt-rock scene back when it came out. I'm biased because I'm a huge Deftones fan, but I'd say it's maybe one of the best albums ever. Um, I was uh, uh, unsurprisingly aware of this album, but uh, I imagine you had had not listened to it, though you probably heard of the Deftones, right? Certainly aware of the Deftones, but really my first time listening to them. So we'll get into White Pony as well. Why don't we do George Michael first? Yeah. Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, George Michael, born in London, 1963. His, I'm going to fucking destroy this name. He, so he's Greek. His parents are Greek. His, his real name, very Greek. Georgios Kyriakos Paneyatu. That, that sounds not bad. I didn't, sounds on point. Yeah, yeah that, that probably didn't ruin it there. His dad was a restaurateur. Mom was a dancer. Grew up with Andrew Ridgely, who ended up being his partner in Wham. They went to school together. George Michael, always sort of a musical dude in his teens, a, uh, a street performer. He and Ridgely, Wham was not their only project. They were also in a ska band as well really? briefly yes wow yeah yeah which is the thank goodness that is not how we knew george michael <laughs> no offense to anyone who loves ska not personally my cup of tea but you know i would rather i, I like it but uh but I, I understand what you're saying yeah i'm glad we know george michael as we know george michael i guess what i would say wham becomes enormous first in the uk their first album was enormous in the uk not so much over here in the states it was their second album make it big that was huge in the US. Wake me up before you go, go. was just fucking so all over MTV and such an obvious smash. You know, um, I'm sure you love, I mean, you have to love Wham. Too. The height of yeah. bubblegum pop, like at its best, yes. that song. But of course, Careless Whisper is the, is the masterpiece. Correct. And Careless Whisper... You know, mostly a, a George Michael tune, basically, which is why eventually I think it became pretty obvious that George Michael was going to end up being his, like his own 
thing or whatever, like where Careless Whisper is essentially a, a George, not a George Michael solo solo song, but really is. Of course, Last Christmas. Enormous smash as well. So they break up in 1986, actually had a farewell single as well. There was a, it seemed amenable. I imagine Andrew originally like just looked at George Michael and was like, all right, I, I know what's happening here. <laughs> this is, this is going to be, we, I made plenty of money. This is going to be fine. Have a, have a great career. A gracious exit. Did you ever see that movie? What is it called? Uh, I think, is it music and lyrics with Hugh Grant? No. It's, it's a really good film. I hope that's the right, title i think it is and he's basically an andrew ridgely you know? uh. <laughs> so uh it's worth it's worth watching uh because it's sort of like what a story centered around like what what would happen with that other guy you know mm, which yeah. is I, that's not fair to say he's that other guy well, but unfortunately but, you know, to some extent yeah you know, that's the perception anyway for the sake of the conversation i think i think that's fine so in 86 i don't remember this song do you remember I knew you were waiting for me, George Michael with Aretha Franklin. No. Came out in nineteen eighty six, went to number one. Before really? Faith ever came out. Yeah. I did wow. not know this. I didn't know the song, but George Michael actually on the, the heels of Careless Whisper actually released a tune with Aretha Franklin, went to number one called I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. And then in 1987, his debut solo album, Faith, came out and just monstrous. Man, oh man. Man, oh man. And I would love to do this album at some point too, because honestly, going back to this album, it is just like, it's sort of like the uh, appetite for destruction of like solo night, solo like late eighties male pop or whatever. Like it, every tune is a, a monster, huge hits all over. And the first single was, it, it's just funny to think about how things have changed. The amount of controversy that the single caused. The first single was, I Want Your Sex. which radio stations some would not play Casey Kasem on his weekly chart show would not say the name of the song he would just say George Michael's new song which really? I, I thought was interesting George Michael did say that it is it's not a song about promiscuity it's actually a song when you look at the lyrics he's like not lying it's about monogamy really like the the sex of in in monogamy and but it, I think it is hilarious that it was it caused such controversy, considering the way that like lyrics are sexualized in 2023. Like it seems it, so benign. Yes, <laughs> it's like it's incredible. So that goes to number two, and then Faith comes out. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. 
with just an iconic fucking video of basically just him, which we'll get to later, like just <laughs> shaking his, his ass. Right. And, but like such a, a just massive, incredible song, Faith is. I mean, just a great, perfect pop song. And that's the thing about George Michael. Everyone, and rightfully so, thinks of him as this extraordinary singer, and he, and, and he was yep. and, and is in, uh, in record form still. That's the beautiful thing about music. It lives forever. Yes, know? absolutely. So, uh, but he was such an extraordinary singer, but also an incredibly gifted pop songwriter. When you yes. look at... He, he's an example of something. You mentioned this briefly. There's some artists who have a catalog that sort of exemplifies quality over quantity. They're not mm-hmm. maybe as prolific as some of their contemporaries, but like every album is an event. Yep. You could say Michael Jackson was that. I would say Sade is that. I put George Michael there. I would say D'Angelo, mm-hmm. where they haven't made a lot of records, but it just seems like every record is something really, really special. And it might take 10 years to do it. Yeah, and it's it's sort of amazing because when, when I was looking at this, I was like, was the next album after Listen Without Prejudice, was that like not until older? And it was, and it was such a, it was such a weird time too, because he was one of the first, like I think publicly super famous gay musicians too. And it was a, a different time. And like, he seemed to, and there was like a couple of weird little sex controversies with him. And by the time older came out, it felt like his moment like was, over it just didn't it didn't like seem like it was there but the peak of the one the the three album peak for George Michael's career of the the second Wham album and then Faith and then Listen Without Prejudice is like in a, in a similar thing to Guns N' Roses really who had really have three like when but they're you, another example of that yeah, right for yeah. three or four they have four records and I guess if you split well. Uh, yeah, use I'm, your illusion into two records, but it's basically one record. Yeah, well, I, I actually lies is an EP, so I, I was just counting use your illusion as two records. So appetite, and then use your illusion one, and use your illusion two, and Chinese democracy doesn't even count. It's not even Guns N' Roses album, really. So whatever. Um, so faith goes to number one. Then just thinking about this album, father figure also on this record. <laughs> Amazing song. One more try. Also on this. My record. favorite song. Oh, really? Your favorite George Michael song? George Michael song. Okay. That to me is. You want to talk about a ballad, mm-hmm. a, a, an artist who could deliver a ballad like mm-hmm. few others could, that that's the proof right there. I mean, he was just, if you if the track had space and he could just cut loose vocally, uh, there was he was unparalleled to me in many ways. I was going to say, as a singer in that song, he just fucking crushes that song. You feel song. it. You feel yeah. every moment of it. That, that's what was so incredible about him was... Mm-hmm. There, you just really felt what he was what he was singing. It, it was it, every line. It was just hit you, or for me anyway. It just always resonated. And uh, and and almost like as a pop star now, pop stars get a plenty of 
respect as like musicians. I think there was a time in between. Interestingly, yesterday was the 26th anniversary of the first Hanson record. And, um, and there was like that, um, nineties period where if you were straightforward pop, there wasn't a lot of, a ton of like, I think credit given to you as a, musician or as a singer or as, or any of those things in that sort of boy band and Britney Spears. And even though they may have all been very popular, that, that window, but George Michael in a window where I I think his, his, uh, what's it called? His musicianship, his musicianship and singing ability was sort of recognized. I don't think he was just, I think it's something that he wrestles with obviously in, um, in freedom 90, but I think he is seen, I thought maybe looking back on it, I thought he was seen more as a musician than just like a, a pretty person or whatever. I'm not, I'm not sure if you thought the same thing. He was a complete package, an incredible singer, incredibly skilled pop song writer, yep. but also a great producer. Yes. He yeah. wrote and produced all these tracks. Correct. And, and played multi-instruments on them. He played guitar, he played keys, he played yep. bass, he did some of the programming. I don't think a lot of people realize that part of it, that he so, was such a gifted musician. You know. So he wins Album of the Year, the Grammys, wins the Video Vanguard Award, MTV. Sells, worldwide, Faith sells 20 million uh, copies worldwide. <laughs> a different time. <laughs> yes. So then Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 comes out and a like departure is the wrong word, but was definitely attempting to be something more and something um, like, you know, his, his, actually, I I have this clip of him talking to Kurt Loder about the title of it. Do you want to hear it real quick? Yeah, yeah significance of it um well many people have misinterpreted the album title because listen without prejudice would to some people uh, uh infer that i was talking about prejudice towards me yeah. and i'm not really talking about prejudice towards me i'm talking about prejudice uh in general i'm talking about the fact that um many many uh people are using music some, sometimes unwittingly, but in, in general, they know what they're doing to kind of um, draw the lines, I think, between white and black um, right now. I think five or six years ago, when you think how hip it was and how commercial it was to be considered an, an artist that was making black and white crossover music. Yeah, which, which you did. Yeah. Which, yeah, I, I guess I'm one of those people. Um, then it's, it's, that's, there's a real contrast between that and now. Yeah. I mean, I think in 1990, you're supposed to know who your audience is, black or white, and uh, you're supposed to play directly to them, yeah. whether it be in terms of video or music or advertising. Everything is, you know, rock and roll and soul music supposedly broke down a lot of those barriers. Yeah. And I think it's quite disturbing to see that, that the same industries are kind of rebuilding the yeah. walls with both hands, you know, quickly as they can. It, um, and it seems to be profitable for them. But I think it's yeah. very, very alarming to see music used almost as a weapon that way. Yeah. So listen without prejudice really means listen with an open mind. Cool. I, you know, I thought it was interesting. Like I'm trying to think back at that time to what 
he may have meant because afterwards there were certainly like white artists who dipped into uh, black music. Like I remember the first time I heard 98 degrees, I was like unsure they were white guys. Like when I heard invisible man, like that was an, it was a nineties R and B song essentially. And you had like John B who was a white guy doing the, you know, baby face nineties R and B. And even in sync when they had that song, uh, gone, like crossed over into, you know, um, black radio and you had Eminem and that sort of stuff. And like, I, I, I don't remember what it was like before then. And I wonder if George Michael was important in, in like, in making that happen, because I, I don't know the time that he's talking about. And I don't know the division that he's talking about thinking back to it, you know, it might've been, I think it was a time in between the eighties and sort of the era you're mentioning. Cause you're yep. talking more like late nineties. Yep. I think yes. I understand yeah, what right. he's saying there. That was profound because it, I think he's talking about it more from an industry standpoint yep. and a marketing standpoint. And sure. they felt it wasn't really about the music at all. It was about targeting an audience. And they felt that if they could split the demographic and target more specifically, you know, rock over here, R&B over here, right. that it was more profitable. I don't see how that, why that is. That doesn't make any sense in this era. No, no, no. In, in, in fact, this it's era, like we the all opposite. listen to everything. Yeah. I mean, yep. it's, it's totally, it's one... It's a democratizing, I think, of music marketing. But if you think about that era, I mean, think about grunge that came right around that time. Mm -hmm. You know, that I think is perhaps what he was referring to, although it's right before grunge. But even if you think of hair metal, yeah, was it grunge? Was white? Yes, yes. And I think perhaps those records were selling a lot of copies, and and maybe the labels and music marketing people saw a division there, and maybe he felt that because when George Michael at his core could go in so many directions as a vocalist, but he was first and foremost an R&B and soul vocalist. Uh, yeah, when I, th- when I think about him actually, in a lot of ways, like I started thinking about Elvis too, you know, like his Elvis, obviously like a, a lot of black music and black influence. And, and I think that you listen to Listen Without Prejudice. And first of all, <laughs> it's amazing to think that this album was like pretty much considered a disappointment. It sold eight million albums worldwide. <laughs> what a disappointment! <laughs> yeah, um, it 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 entered. The, he wrote and produced the entire thing. It entered the chart at Billboard at twenty two. Eventually hit number one. You know, it wasn't until like ten years later that the idea of like debuting at number one was a thing. The the, the idea of albums building to number one, I think, was more became was more about this time than it was like maybe 10 years later where the the huge new album debuted at number one, like where you had the- That was a litmus test in a sense. You wanted to debut and it wasn't the gradual build up. Correct. Time. Yeah. It was like where, where, you know, I think Backstreet Boys and NSYNC told, sold 2 million the first week and there was a Limp Bizkit album that sold 1.6 million the first week. And it was about the huge debut. Um, I, I don't think it was so much so, but it, it's such a, like, I say this, as a compliment scattered album musically, like where there are songs that almost sound like gospel songs. And there are songs that sound like straight ahead sort of pop rock songs that he, that would have been maybe on faith. And then, you know, cause even, even praying for time sounds like almost an evolution of father figure, you know, like that or, but, but there's so much on there. I think the, the only complaint listening, and I think it's aged, incredibly well. I think the songs still sound great today. 
the only, I think, complaint, he uses a lot of reverb on his voice on this album when you uh, listen back to it that I don't think he needs. I think in some of the, the more sparse music, musical songs, but it is such a, an amazing album. And, you know, he says, he says, listen without prejudice and it's not about me, but I, I think he's lying a little bit, actually. Um, I think he does mean about him on, on some level, you know, like when uh, it's hard to listen to the lyrics of freedom 90 and not think that part of it isn't about him not being judged as one thing. Right? There's especially that one portion, I agree 100%. It's more personal maybe than he let on because- yes. Lying's the wrong, the wrong, the wrong thing. Yeah, but yeah. I think he was trying to paint the picture of it being a broader perspective, but there are definitely some things that are very personal because there are those lines, well, it looks like the road to heaven, but it feels like the road to hell. When I knew which side my bread was buttered, I took the knife as well. I mean, yeah. he's sort of talking about, I think, backlash against him. Sure, it, it's such an incredible song to end up on MTV. And by the way, he, he refused to appear in any of the videos. So Freedom 90 famously has, does it have a, a few like supermodels in it, if I remember correctly? <laughs> and it, like there's, there's this lyrical um, passage in it. I think there's something you should know. I think it's time I saw, stop the show. There's something deep inside of me. There's someone I forgot to be. Take back your picture in a frame. Don't think that I'll be back again. I just hope you understand. Some, sometimes the clothes don't make the man. And, you know, and there's the line, you, you shake your ass, they notice fast. Some mistakes were, weren't meant to last or whatever. Like, this is, a, this is like an incredibly honest, great, great, great tune. I think this song gets better every time I listen to it. I found him, I found like an, uh, an interview where he talked about each song and he said, Freedom 90, when I came into the business, I had no idea that I was going to be any sort of physical entity. I had grown up with Andrew. I was particularly an unattractive adolescent and he was always very handsome. And I always assumed that the vast majority of the physical attention would be on Andrew. I think when things changed and I started to feel some of that, I got completely carried away because after all, I was 19, 20 years old. Suddenly I was considered attractive and I was still very insecure. I spent years working through those insecurities, I think. And really, in a sense, it was a distraction. It was like a six year long distraction to me. I had to work out that the most important thing in the world was not to have people think you were gorgeous. And I eventually came to that decision. And this song is really about that. It's about me moving away from kind of selling myself as a physical persona and just getting on with what I'm best at, which is writing songs. And I had mentioned this song too, when we did the in utero thing with the lyrics from Serve the Servants, like the, about the idea of, of like the regret of being popular for something that you maybe didn't mean to be popular for. D'Angelo experienced that with right with voodoo. How does it feel? You know that yeah. he that had a similar effect on him. Yeah, maybe even more so. Yeah, than what George Michael dealt with, but but very comparable. Yeah, that these are both extraordinarily gifted artists, but for a time, all the attention is on this one video and this one very superficial aspect of who they are, and at least in in the short term. It threatened to obscure how talented they were, how special they were as artists. 
A um, couple other songs, and then we can just talk more about it. Like, I love uh, the, the opening song is Praying for Time, which ends up being his last number one song ever. Uh, and was the opening, yeah, was the opening single, opening song of the album, first single from the album, and ends up being his last number one single ever. He said, it's very difficult to express what I was trying to say with praying for time. And when there's any subject where you feel really strongly about, especially if it's complex, it's difficult to actually be eloquent about it and get your point across. I think the actual lyric has much more power than me trying to explain it. I think it's a type of song that so many people will have different interpretations. I wrote it really just thinking in terms of the way people act. I think people's lack of compassion for one another and trying to work out why people are like that these days, increasingly like that. It does have a bit of an imagine vibe to it, I think. But again, another like, I just, I'm always, I'm struck by how massive the song is praying for time, you know? Yeah, I think also for, in the context of this album, it sets the tone perfectly mm -hmm. because he's coming at it from the standpoint of, I want to express to you that I have perspectives. I have a social commentary I want to provide you with because there's lines in that song, this is the year of the hungry man whose place is in the past, hand in hand with ignorance and legitimate excuses. When I read some of the lines, it's it's about economic inequality. It's a- sure. It's a profound statement he's making. And maybe that's what threw people off a little bit because they're still thinking about the guy from the Faith video. Right, right, he, right. Here he is providing social commentary and the lyrics are powerful. And not in the video. Like, and that, not that is, in the video. That is a right. crazy thing for somebody like him to not be in the video. And the other song is actually just sort of the, maybe the opposite of Praying for Time. I just love it is Heal the Pain, which is essentially like a, Beatles tune basically is just like a very straightforward, great pop song that would fit on a number of different albums and just shows that he, when he wants to have his like pop fastball. It's, it's there. He could have made an album full of those and he chose not to. There are, there are plenty of great songs, but just a, an amazing tune, Heal the Pain. When you think of the combination of songs on this record, it, it fully represents every aspect of yep. it. There's the powerful soul singer with the gospel influence in, in Freedom 90. Yep. There's that pop rock side, mm -hmm. which he can go into the even bubblegum pop rock when you think about Wake Me Up Before You Go. And, and it's still soulful, but yep. it's undeniably right down the middle pop rock. And then he has this jazzy side, which he explored yep. more later on in his career with the Cowboys and Angels.
Yeah. And it's, I don't know if you've ever listened to that record. I haven't spent a lot of time with it, but songs from the last century. I do you know I haven't. I, I like the only I I when I was doing the research for this, I was like, you know, I'd have to listen to that album because I remember I remember older a good bit, but I don't remember songs from the last century very much at all. And it's a standards album. He he did some jazz interpretations of contemporary pop songs, but mostly jazz standards. And he was an incredible jazz singer. He was so versatile mm -hmm. in what he could do. One of the biggest moments and best moments for me is when he covers Stevie Wonder. Right here from the start, they won't go and I go. Think about that triumvirate of songs. It's I'm hard pressed to think of an album that has a, a a more potent trilogy of songs to kick it off than this one because it starts with um, with praying for time. Mm -hmm. Then you go into Freedom ninety. Yeah. What a one two punch that is. Yeah. And then he hits you with the Stevie Wonder cover. Yeah. Which that's one of my favorite songs by Stevie in general and particularly on the album fulfilling this first finale. You know, Stevie had that amazing run of Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This First Finale, and Songs in the Key of Life. And I'm going to go off on a side tangent here, but I remember reading this quote from Elton John about Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. He said, if, if you just crank that album up and listen to it, it'll get you high. And when I, th and I, you know, there's some, there's truth in that. Same thing with George Michael. Just crank Freedom 90 up and... <laughs> You just can't help but be moved by it. But his, you know, that performance on Fulfilling This uh, First Finale of They Won't Go When I Go by Stevie is so singular. It's, it's remarkable to me that he could take this song and still make it his own because it is really difficult. I'm not going to say he topped the original, but it's difficult to even match it and bring something fresh to it. Because Stevie's performance on that song, on that album, is just in so deep. It's so powerful. And yet, George Michael's version is, in many ways, every bit as powerful here. And he takes it and makes it his own. He, he makes the phrasing his own. He, he does some different things with it, although he stays true to the song. So that, that And he crushes it vocally, by the way. I mean, yeah. like you can hear yeah. it in his like gut or whatever, the way he crushes that song. You can hear, exactly. You can hear that song means a lot to him. Mm-hmm. That that's there are a few singers who could communicate that much emotion. I would say Stevie Wonder obviously is one of them. George Michael is right there too. It's where you just feel every line. It is a as I mentioned, like it is the the last big album he had in the United States, but is and and ended up being he ended up suing the record label uh, for not promoting the the album enough in his his estimation, and you know. Despite eight million sales, yeah, yeah. Well, it it's interesting because I I would understand his point. I would also understand the record label's point at the time in that we have made an investment in you based on X. And we do not feel Y will make us as much money as X. So why should we? You know, at that like I think you could make the argument that 
you you danced in the video, buddy. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you can't take that back. Yeah, you yeah. saw you saw <laughs> your ass shaking in the faith video, and now you're not gonna be in the videos. Like we respect your artistic, you know, uh, your heart, your the, the artistic groove on this. But could it be like one for you, one for me? Could we do something about this? So I do. I it, it is the the enormous issue when art and commerce are are intertwined the way they are with music and I could absolutely understand where he was coming from and absolutely understand the frustration from the label where he's like well I don't want to be known as that and it's like well we just spent you know 25 million dollars trying to get you known as that <laughs> you know right. like this, <laughs> this, this is this is gonna be a this is gonna be a tough putt on on that you know so uh, but such a a fantastic album and george michael who ended up dying uh at 53 years old um that was and, so sad i that yeah that that was a devastating one i mean it crushed me died on christmas and yes that i think there was something even heavier about it uh, yeah but with my, that, but it was just so sad. I mean, he was. I feel like he still had more left in him. Yeah, my wife could see that I was like affected by it. Like it hit me really hard. And also, by the way, I'm not even that far away from 53. I guess at this point. But and and you hadn't heard much from him at that point. And they said that you know he had heart disease and a fatty liver, and that was what ended up causing it. And who knows how sick he was in the last, you know five years of his life. Cause I don't, I don't remember seeing or hearing from him very much, but for somebody who was such a fantastic artist who, who, by the way, ended up like did a lot for like did a lot of like charity stuff and, and seemed to care about bigger picture, you know, um, what was that Christmas song? Do you remember that song? Do they know it's Christmas? Do oh, they know? He was on that song. Wait, hold on. It was like is one of the- one of those, we are the world kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do they know it's Christmas is a fucking, here, wait, Band-Aid was the- Ah. Wait, hold on. Because he's on this tune. I don't know if you remember. It's Christmas time. Oh, I've heard this, yes. Yeah. No I forgot about it, but yeah. <laughs> he's on this one. I wonder when he is in it. This is not him. Boy George. Uh, another great singer. Yep. Christmas time. Yeah. Good. <laughs> That's him, right? Yep. Uh, unmistakable. Anyway, there we go. But as, as a, a an amazing artist, seemed like a great person who cared about other people and um, and had so many like contributed so many wonderful songs. I do feel though that he, on some level, has been like a little memory hold in that he, I don't think people talk about him ever. And he was so great. And I, I almost wish somebody would just do one of his songs again. Like I wish there would be Limp Bizkit doing Faith was obviously really big, but that was 20 years ago. Um, but I feel like he could have an amazing cover by somebody and maybe cause people to, or I wish one of his songs would get big on TikTok or something and, and get people to, you know, dive back into his music because I, I don't think he's talked about very often. Do you feel he's 
sort of underappreciated in this era? I do. I, I but I I get it. Like he didn't make another particularly important album culturally after this. So, you know, and that was that was in 1990. So and I I understand and it's not like, you know, his sort of music, I don't know if it inspired the sort of passion, like lasting passion, the way that a rock band would, the way that it, we mentioned Guns N' Roses, the way that the passion for Guns N' Roses would. Um, and I, and so I, I, I don't, I, I guess I sort of get it, but I wish that it, it wasn't that way. Like I wish that, I wish that he was sort of remembered for being as great as he was. And I just don't, I, I, I've never, I never hear a George Michael cultural reference or, or anything like that, you know? It's strange because I guess it's hard for me to be objective because his music means so much to me. But maybe yeah. you're right. Yeah, in, in the general cultural lexicon, I guess you don't hear that much about him. Y- you know, you certain not as much as you do about, say, Guns N' Roses if you want to A-B those two right. artists. They kind of hit it mega superstardom at the same time, really in the same year. Yep, yep. You which know, is, I, by the way, which is why it, like, it's particularly hits me like that was the time that it mattered to me 86 87 is when music started mattering specifically to me so uh, but it, just an, an incredible album i would recommend any everybody go back and listen to the, the entire catalog specifically listen without there was supposed to be a listen without prejudice too there's no really information on why it did or didn't happen i can imagine like the frustration between label and artists probably had something to do with it so but but specifically faith and listen without prejudice just incredible incredible records two pop classics mm-hmm. masterpieces both of them you want to do White Pony, which came to us from Apple Podcast listener Allison Chains, 1994. That's a great handle. Yep. And a nice review. Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, thank you. Review. We love those. We get a lot of those. What a pivot from George Michael to, <laughs> to, to the to Deftones. Death <laughs> yeah. But that's what we do here. I assume you're quite familiar with the Deftones, mm-hmm. undeniably more than I am. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Never, never been like a huge advocate, but White Pony was was a a particular moment for them. Is like that was like their attempt at a crossover moment. So I do remember the the White Pony moment pretty well. It took me some time, but the more I listened to this record, the more I liked it. Hmm, good. I think we can get into it in, in just a bit because there's one interesting quote that I want to read about their place in new metal. Yep. Are they, from your perception, are they squarely in new metal or are they sort of on the periphery of that something different? In terms of who their fans are, they are new metal, which is a lot of times what you are, what you are defined as is, is defined as who, who likes you, right? So they're in the middle of the corn you know, and then into what new metal becomes, uh, Godsmack, yada, yada, yada. They're squarely in the middle of that. Musically though, they were always, like they have more diehards. They're a little less easier to grasp than some of the later new metal. And, and by the way, they're still like a big deal. So I think they were always thought of as a little different, a little heavier than regular new, new metal. And obviously the, the way the music presents is 
pretty different than most new metal, even though they end up in that genre. That was my take on it. If you isolate a track or two, you would think that, but then when you, I think with this album, especially for someone who's new to their music, mm -hmm. you have to absorb it as a full album. Yeah, 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 for sure. And for then sure. you get the sense of there's a lot to this band. They're not yeah. just in one pocket. When I went back to this album, I listened to it, and it starts with like uh, back to school, and I was like, oh fuck, Wootler's gonna hate me. And I was like, this is, this is going to be this. And it was such a nice review and it was different than, and I was like, ah, we'll pick this one. And then I went back to the album. I was like, oh, this one's going to be, Moodler's going to have to dive, really dive in to, to really appreciate this one. But I, but I did. And I was, the more I listened, the more I liked it. Because as you go on, especially in the latter part of the record, it goes in a yeah. lot of different directions. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But and and little... there's, I, I'm curious as to whether eventually that your favorite song of the album is the same as my favorite song of the album, because I think it's possible, but probably we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that. I'm, yeah. I'm going to, I'm guessing it is. Okay. All right. Give a little backdrop formed in 1988 in Sacramento, California. The current and core members are Chino Marino on vocals yep. and later in later years, guitar as well. Stephen Carpenter on guitar, Abe Cunningham on drums, and Frank Delgado on keyboards, turntables, and samples. He joined more recently, well, in 1999. They've had some former members. Dominic Garcia was on bass for a brief time in the late 80s and then drums in the early 90s. Chai Chang, who was on bass and vocals, and he was a huge part of this band. Uh, yeah, uh, Chi. Chi. Is it Chi? Oh, okay. Yep. Okay, yep, yep, Chi yep. Chang. Yep. Thank you for clarifying that. You got it, yep. Uh, on bass and vocals, he he was, I think, in the band for a better part of two decades during their kind of main run. Yeah. And sadly passed away in 2013. Four, uh, I think he was like 40 or something, like right, right around that age. It's, it's a very sad story yeah. and clearly an important figure in the history of this, of this band. Yeah. They had a few other members. John Taylor was on the drums in the early 90s. And Sergio Vega on bass from 2009 to 2021. So there's been some different personnel that have come in and out. But at the core of the band has always been Chino Marino, Stephen Carpenter, and Abe Cunningham. And really, Chino Marino, at least in my understanding of it, is sort of the leader of this yes, band. Yes, for sure. He's yep. the focal point. Yeah. After the lineup finally settled in in 1993, they signed with Maverick Records and ended up releasing their debut, Adrenaline, in 1995. Now, one thing that's clear about this band as you read about them, and it made me think about Hanson and some of these other groups we discussed, no matter what the genre, they clearly committed to being a touring act. Oh, yeah. Early on. Yeah. And toured at a relentless pace. And it speaks to why they've had staying power. Uh, we've seen this over and over again. If you just stay on the road and you build your audience there, no matter what the commercial outcomes are of your records, you're going to endure and I think that's a testament to their work ethic and the fact that they have a very dedicated audience to this day. I was curious, like, what, where would they play? What are they're they're not an arena act, are they? No, maybe with the right support. I think the factory would be a little, maybe too. They would sell at the factory in a second, 
By the way, uh, Limp Bizkit opened up for Deftones on like their first national tour. Really? The, yeah, Ladies Night in Cambodia tour, whatever. They, uh, they opened what up. What a title did, for a... Did not... Was a difficult tour for Limp Bizkit. Let's put it that way. It was not. We're not. They we're weren't. Not, they weren't accepted. By we're the, not received particularly well at a lot of the a lot of the shows. Uh, but where would they play now? They could do. How big is Franklin Music? Not Franklin Music Hall. Yeah, Franklin Music Hall. Uh, I think twenty five hundred. They could definitely do that. Like they could do two nights of that. I don't think they could do like seven thousand somewhere, but they could do two nights of three thousand. Or they'd be on like a three, four act summer package tour. That could definitely do like amphitheaters or something. Right. But on their own, they're big club level. Yeah, I think so at this point. That would be my guess. But I mean, just to maintain that is huge. Is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's, it's not easy to do that. They have have very, 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 very diehard fans. Like, Like really, the people who like Deftones really like them. Interesting that there's such a, a, like no, that they, they tour so much in that the three times I've seen them live, <laughs> I have n- not been impressed. I, I think I, it, there's something about the way the, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, the way that the vocals are delivered that I think is sort of tough live. Um, I saw them, they, they, uh, they were on Summer Sanitarium. The last show ever at the Vet was Metallica, Summer Sanitarium tour with Metallica, Deftones, Limp Biscuit, and wow. yeah, and the Deftones I did I didn't think were great, but but also I think their energy is a lot better in a club than it is in a, a big place. Especially their sound is so so oddly messy in a way that the bigger the place is, I think the less it sort of resonates. The worse. It's an it interesting dynamic because I've had that experience on a very different level where it's thrilling to play at an arena or a yeah. huge amphitheater. And I'm just grateful I've had those opportunities. And I've always done those things solo, me and a mm. guitar. Yep, just you. Just me. And it, and it's it's thrilling to play those venues. Yeah. But sometimes, I would say this, amphitheaters are designed for music. So that's almost always a great experience. Arenas are not designed for music. Right. And the sound and, bounces around in there and... Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's an adjustment, especially when you're at the sound check. You're like, whoa, yeah. how am I going to... Once people are in there, it sort of absorbs some of the sound. But so I think sometimes if you see a band in a certain context, it's it's not their ideal environment, maybe. And for some bands, some bands are designed to be arena bands. You know, like the Killers just seem like they were yeah. put together to be an arena band. But other bands are meant to be... You, you get the full essence of what they are in a club. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just doesn't translate in that grandiose environment. It seems like maybe that's part of it. Or it, yeah. what were the other contexts in which you saw them? Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen them in larger clubs, and they're it's different. It's better. You know what I mean? It's I like it's more intense, and the noise is more intense. And they, their crowd, the crowd is so into it that it is. It makes if the crowd's really really into a band, it's hard for the show not to be um, not to be really really good. You know, uh, but I do think there is something about. The music itself, which is just, it's like not tight in a way that, um, that, that I think resonates great live, but I think the energy has always been great when I've seen them. And it seems like, uh, Chino Marino on his own has done a lot of work that, yeah, that the fan base is also engaged with. So he's sort of the sure. musical mastermind of the thing. Yep. 
The second album, Around the Fur, drops in 1997, kind of continued their steady progression of commercial success, expansion of the fan base. But as you mentioned, this record was the one that really put them over the top. Yeah. Third album, in many ways it seems to have been, I don't have a full context, I don't know a lot of the other music, but it seems to have been, or is considered to be, both a creative and a commercial peak for, uh, for this band. They started expanding their sound, mm-hmm. which is what I think I reacted to. Because again, if you just isolate a song or two, especially early on in the record, you're not going to get the full scope of it. Yeah. But they go in a number of different musical directions. It also seems like it was commercially successful. It was. Now to get back to the new metal thing, originally they were associated with that scene, but Chino Marino has continually rejected that description. <laughs> He's always pushed back against it. That's why I was curious as to what the sort of perception is. There's a quote from the music critic Johnny Loftus that I want to read because I think it gives some perspective on where they are in sort of the musical slash new metal lexicon. He says, rock critics usually reserve a special place for Deftones above or at least away from the rest of the turn of the century metal movement. Deftones have always seen more curious more willing to incorporate traditionally revered sounds like DC hardcore and dream pop into their Northern California alt metal. That I I, I get that from this album. I, I could see how it would be frustrating for them to be pigeonholed in this one place when really their music is broader than that. It just it reminds me a little of hair bands, Bob, by the way. Like you could <laughs> No, I mean, like you could say Cinderella to to pigeonhole them as a hair band is probably unfair. To pigeonhole Tesla as a hair band is probably unfair. But like, on unfortunately, you, people need to put you in a place, and and you are who your fans are. And I think, like, I do think that Deftones look their fan base probably spread out a little bit more than the than that whole but that's that's who they would tour with and that's and you know what i mean that's who they would tour with it's it's probably still who they would tour with and they that's who their fans are but i i agree it if you were to describe them musically and pops up in your head papa roach and disturbed as as uh as new metal like deftones are nothing like them musically but but certainly in terms of like where they sit they're not they're not like a metal metal band you know like they're not like actual metal and they're not straight alternative there's too much screaming in it there's a ton of screaming in it so it just ends up being the people who even corn like early corn was nothing like what new metal would eventually become so yeah yeah it's sort of like the grunge thing where uh, yeah those four bands, you know, Soundgarden, Alice Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, they're they're nothing like each other. Right, right, right. But it's a marketing gimmick at some point. Right. Yeah, and I guess there is sure. a need to put people or put bands in a certain place. Yep. Which to me is frustrating, but maybe that's changed in this era, you know. But still, there you have to, it's it, it simplifies description sometimes. Yep. In the years since White Pony, they released uh, six more albums. Deftones in 2003, self-titled, Saturday Night Wrist in 2006, Diamond Eyes in 2010, Koi no Yokan in 2012, Gore in 2016, and Ohms in 2020. So they've steadily put releases out there. Despite some of the periodic lineup changes, internal friction at times, the tragedy of Chi Chang, right? Yep. 
of his passing. He was in a, he was, the, the way he died, by the way, he was in a car accident and he was in a coma for four or five years, I think. Like forever. Like yeah. And then yeah. he eventually passed away. It was really, really, heavy really to have sad it drawn situation. Out like oh that. my God. Yeah. yeah. That's really sad. But they've been through a lot as a band. But one thing that's been consistent is they've continually received critical acclaim. It seems, relatively speaking, comparatively to some of the other bands that are sort of in that world, that yep. new metal world. And I, at least with their audience, it seems they've transcended being put in that category, even though, like you said, at first glance, they're there. Mm-hmm. Get into a few highlights on the record. Now, you mentioned the first thing, Back to School, in parentheses, <laughs> Mini Maggot. Yeah. Uh, what what a title for for a song. <laughs> yeah, uh, it kicks the record off with that recognizable sort of rap metal sound. But I even that song sort of sets itself aside because I think what sets itself aside or the way it sets itself aside is Chino Marino's vocal approach. Yeah, which takes some adjusting to. Yeah, uh, but it's he, always like it's, I would always he, make fun of it or whatever. I would always be like, <laughs> yes, yeah. and then. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like this, every song that's is a like pretty good. It's uh, a pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I've a lot of practice me doing the uh, the Chino Marino impression. When we, we would host Rockers, the metal show on, and they were they were always really popular on Rockers. I would always do my my Chino impression on there. So I've, <laughs> I've done it several times. That's impressive. Yeah, thanks, thanks. It's a very particular way of sort of attacking the vocal. Yep, yep, yep. It's definitely singular. I can't think of anyone who sounds like. And I think that's even within that sound makes them unique. For sure. It's some combination of that intensity, like the scream thing that you just sort of did, but with a more laid back rhythmic pocket. I mean, he's almost, it's not intense in its rhythmic attack. It's only in its vocal attack. Absolutely. And so his version of sort of the singing rhyming hybrid is, is his own. Even, even in a noisy song, like back to school, the, there's a, a, a notable groove in the verses of it. That's just like that. You really feel the bass part of it. That the that if you take the vocals out, it really does feel like it has like more of a groove than 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 you hear when you just listen to the song the first time. Yeah, and even that tune with repeated listens, it kind of grows on you. Yeah, yeah, was my favorite on the record, but I thought it was. It's an interesting starting point for the album. Yep, I agree. A few, few tracks later, there's a nice musical pivot with Digital Bad. That's my favorite tune on the record. That's a favorite one? Okay. Yeah, it's one of yeah. mine, but okay. I actually have another one. But okay. uh, that's right up there. Sort of a, a moody, atmospheric groove on that one. A more melodic approach to the vocal. And when I hear that one, it, it reminds me to some extent of early 90s uh, alt-rock sound. Or There's more of that in it. More of that sensibility. My favorite part of it, though, is the guitars. That yeah. There's that fuzzed out quality to the guitars that sort of drives the track. Yeah, it did. It, it's not the sort of guitar you would expect in new metal, by the way. You would you expect that like, that tight sort of uh, compact, chunky guitar, and this is sort of almost almost like classic rocky or fuzz rocky in its in its 
presentation and sounds really cool. I love digital, but digital bath sounds like a, a song from a space movie to me or something. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I really love that tune. That tune always ends up on running playlists for me. It's definitely a standout. Mm-hmm. One, another standout I would say is RX Queen. Best hook on the album, I think. Yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love, I, I like a lot of the guitar playing on this record. There's sort of this sparse, angular riff on the yeah. verses. Yeah. And the outro groove, the last minute or so, is basically an industrial sound. Yeah. So they make this other musical pivot that, once again, sort of sets them aside. And I think as you listen, moments like that... Just show you that they're trying to push the envelope. There's all these interesting musical twists and turns. Now, my favorite tune is Teenager. Interesting, great tune. Um, it's almost like a like an like an indie ballad teenager. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the quieter side of the Deftones, and I like the quieter side of the Deftones. I think yeah. that's what started to win me over. I I like Chino Marino singing in that pocket, maybe more than what he's best known for, uh, because you know when he goes for a more understated vocal approach, it's it's appealing and. He can deliver a melody. It's yeah, not, absolutely, yeah. But it doesn't seem like that's what he's known for, what he does for the most part, but he does a nice job on this song. There's a really atmospheric, syncopated kind of groove. It has almost this hypnotic quality to it. We've talked about songs like this before, and this is one of them, where there's a groove, but it feels slow. It's not a ballad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. But it feels down-tempo, yep. and yet it grooves. When you listen to the drum track, mm-hmm. it's a very particular sort of syncopation in the drum track. And it sets itself aside that way. And I like the lyric, direct, but very effective and resonant. In my perception of it, you know, speaking on heartache, love loss, basically about two people growing apart. That moment in the record, a little uh, right around midway through, that kind of won me over. And I, at that point, I felt, okay, this is a band that's, they're way beyond just that. If it would have stayed in the pocket of back to school <laughs> yeah, all the yeah. way through, yeah. I might have had a hard time. But once I heard tunes like this, and even moments like the uh, outro of RX Queen, yep. you, you you see that they're they're trying for something. They're trying to go in different directions and expand the sound. So I think for a number of reasons they set themselves aside. I think Chino Marino's, like we said, very distinctive. And though my only criticism is I wish there were a few more moments like Teenager, you know? Yeah. I like the, the a few more quieter moment side moments of the uh, of the Deftones. There's a song in the next record on the album on the next album called Minerva that you would probably really like. I'll send it to you afterwards. I think the other two notable tracks on here, Passenger. It 
has Maynard James Keenan from Tool as the other singer on it. I cannot think of a lot of times where Maynard Keenan was a guest vocalist on there. And if I remember correctly, he was like, maybe more tied into the record. It was supposed to be more tied into the record than he was. And what it just ended up being was him on, on passenger. And then the first single, like was the, the single that I remember really remember them ever getting on radio in a successful way, at least during my era was change. Change was the first single, Change in the House of Flies, which is at the end of the album, but is a is a really well sort of written uh, from a pop perspective rock song. It was a really good tune. It's a cool album. It is definitely all over the place. And I'm, I'm glad that you settled in with it a little bit after the, uh, the <laughs> <laughs> like after that, you know, I'm it's, I, it's one of those albums that the more I listened to, the more I liked Cool. And uh, another great listener suggestion. I think the moments like this are what feel very invigorating about what we're doing here. Because it, before this podcast, I never would have given this a chance. Yeah, for sure. I would have heard one or two of these songs and been like, "Ah, it's not my thing." But because we have to like take time with it, it over you know the course of listening to the album. Yeah, because you got to talk about things. it for that half an hour. So yeah, you, yeah, you can't mail that one in. Yeah. And I came to like the record, which might, you know, I never would have even imagined that before. So it's about expanding our our sort of uh, listening range. Speaking of expanding listening range, so we have one more thing to talk about is the single that I brought, and it is called Pronouns by uh, your, wait, I'm sorry, your old Drew. It's not even an option. I said, I make cake like Dr. Dre when my pockets got slim, and you ain't in your mother's top 10. It don't matter what your pronouns are, you are not him. Yeah, yeah, you are not him. Uh, uh, and I'm not them. Uh huh, and they not it. It don't matter what your pronouns are. Your old Droog, produced by Mad Lib. Honestly, the only reason I listened to this song is because I saw, I can't remember who it was, I saw somebody tweet about it and tweet the link, and the cover art, I don't know if you know where the cover art comes from, but it, there's a, a five second video on the internet that became a meme for a while and still pops up where a guy's in a grocery store or something or a convenience store. And he's obviously like arguing with somebody and looks at the guy and he goes, you're not that guy, pal. You're not that guy. <laughs> and it's such a great, like it's so dismissive. And that that's his face, like on, on the cover art, the you're not that guy, pal. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> You're not that guy. And then the other reason I went is the only time I've ever heard the phrase, the word droog was uh, Clockwork Orange, um, which is one which of I my- I still haven't seen. Uh, I'm you, a, you've never seen Clockwork Orange? I'm a Kubrick fan, but I've still never seen that one somehow. You should definitely. They had, a, they had to stop playing it in in London when it came out because there were, there were like at soccer matches, there were like gangs of youths who were sort of like- uh, um, uh, imitating what they saw in in the Clockwork Orange, so it didn't play in in, in the UK for a really long time. Um, it's a, an interesting movie. 
uh, really, really good movie. Hard to read book. I tried reading the book and I couldn't do it. it it's hard with the language that, uh, just like a different language that is, and it, it's easier to understand in context when somebody is saying it than it is, but it is shot in such a fucking Kubrick way. Like oh, yeah. the visually, it's so Kubrick. You should definitely watch it. The but. way he framed his shots yep. is, has been so influential. What's your take on Eyes Wide Shut? Very quick, I'm curious what you think about that. I one. love Eyes Wide Shut. Me too. And <laughs> a lot that, of people don't like that film. Yeah. They, they don't I consider it up in the high up on the list of Kubrick movies. I think it's amazing. that I believe it's Eyes Wide Shut. There's this, there's this piece written about Stanley Kubrick about how meticulous he is about everything. And there's one thing about him wanting the, this exact red door. And I think it was for eyes wide shut, but he, he made like his assistant find like millions of pictures of doors <laughs> to find the exact door he wanted. I thought it was eyes wide shut, but I'll, I'll go. And I also like the story about eyes wide shut. The, like the theory, maybe it was Chuck Klosterman's theory that he wrote about once that, Stanley Kubrick made this movie to break up Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, which oh, it eventually wow. like sort of I didn't know that did. angle of it. Yeah. yeah, that did happen. Yes. Part of it is they weren't they they were in the UK for like three years. Yeah, trying to doing make this, this movie <laughs> fucking insane movie. I love Eyes Wide Shut. I think it is such an interesting way to examine a relationship and ends in such a fucking amazing moment. <laughs> And it's so weird, but the more that you watch it, the more that you get past the weirdness of it and really get into the dialogue and, and even it taking place over such a short amount of time, but it, it's such a long movie. I don't know, it's a fucking great movie. I like Eyes Wide Shut. And it doesn't feel long, but yeah, you're right. No. It's over a short, it is over a very short window. Yeah. And the score, which is, oh, is so as good. bare bones and sparse as could possibly be. Yeah. For the most part, Two notes on the piano. Yeah, but and yet it's that so works. affecting. Yeah, so it's, affecting. It's 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 unsettling. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredibly unsettling movie. In any case, <laughs> that was a, a real um, diversion there. That was my fault. You're old Druk. So I see this. I see the word Druk. I see the you're not that guy cover. And I'm like, I'll listen to this. And I, this is a pretty classic sounding hip hop beat in the, like the indie hip hop Wu Tang sort of sound and, and vocal delivery. He is interesting. So he was born in Ukraine, moved to Brooklyn when he was four years old. A lit, original language he spoke was Russian and ended up getting popular in 2014 when an EP of his started circulating and people started theorizing that it was a new Nas record and people thought he was Nas. He sounds and a lot like him. He does. And when I read that, I was like, ooh, he does sound like Nas. And he actually, I, I read an interview with him. They asked him like what he thought of that. And he was like, are you kidding? Like that was, it, it helped make me popular. I was like <laughs> totally fine with it. And ended up putting out um, a couple of EPs. And then in 2019, released three full lengths in 2019, two more full lengths in 2021. And then I think a couple of a couple of singles in 2022 and 2023. Pronouns produced by Matlib. Basically a diss track. I don't know who he's talking about. I don't know enough of the history of 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 uh, your old Drug to know like what he's talking about. But he is a good lyricist, 
has, I mean, if you sound like Nas, your flow is probably good as well. It's a haunting, very sparse, Wu-Tang-ish sort of beat. And the fucking, the lyric, <laughs> you ain't in your mother's top 10. It don't matter what your pronouns are, what your pronouns are, you are not him. Is a fucking, <laughs> is just a, dude, that is like, to me, what hip hop lyrics are all about. It doesn't matter what your pronouns are. You are not him. That is fucking amazing. It's a great lyric. It's one of the most unique diss tracks I've ever heard. Yeah. yeah. And there's just, that's a great line. There's just, there's so many great turns of phrase. Yeah. My favorite one, because it has basketball references, for every bump on your face, I got a classic joint for it. I'm Luka Doncic from this point forward. Yeah. To get ahead, I had to master the step back, check my correct stats. The passes was exact. Yep. <laughs> I just the, his wordplay is. It has me interested to check out more of his work because one, oh, he yeah. does sound like Nas, and I love Nas. Yep. But he's he's distinctive. He has his own. But it, there, it's definitely you can see the connection, and just his <laughs> the way he puts it together is, is something else. Oh yeah, really, really good. I just like I love this. I love the tune. The first time I, the first time I heard it, it's it's it gets in and out without any, without wasting any of your time. I think it's two and a half minutes long, something like that, but just a, a great tune. And he's got plenty of music to check out. I will go listen, but I, I do want to be a fan of his now. Like that oh, is my, me too. And yeah. I was already a huge fan of Madlib because we discussed shades of blue and I had picked road of the lonely ones a couple years ago. I, I hear what you're saying. It's in the pocket of that Wu Tang influence indie hip hop thing. But I do love how spacious the track is because the verse is basically just a piano and a bass groove. There's no real beat in the verse. Yeah. The bass is is what keeps the is what drives the groove and then the piano kind of marks, you know, marks the beats. And but then and then on the chorus it comes in with this rolling drum part that is also unexpected. It's not it's a an unconventional sort of hip hop beat, but it works. You always feel the pulse of it. But when you analyze the production, it's a good example of just taking a few elements and not needing anything more than that, and making those f uh, few elements feel fully realized. And the rest, you know, your old Drew just takes over and leaves him all the space to kind of carry the song. Absolutely. Actually, is there a new album? Did I see this? Venture Capital? Or is, I think that's in, oh, it's just one song, Venture Capital. So uh, another great, by the way, in the, I think that is a Vince Carter reference on the Which Venture Capital it? cover. Oh, so, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, your old Drew um, pronouns is the name of that song. Good pod. I yes, feel like indeed. we covered yes, a lot indeed. of great music. So um, as we're recording this, I'm, I want the Sixers to go on. Uh, However. You, you read my mind. I was going to, I know you're immersed in basketball all the time. So I try to steer clear of it. But we are, first and foremost, well, we are ultimately a spinoff. Of, of the Ricky, podcast, of the Ricky, so maybe quickly, what's your what's your gut instinct? Oh well, and, and this will, with this, this uh, I wonder how this will age. And the, the the difficult part for me now is once once you get past the first round, the games are every other day, basically. Right. So it, so for the so we are on the day of it's game four today, but it went Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, then it goes Tuesday, Thursday. Sunday again, if there's, so my gut is they, they can't win the series. I mean, I, yeah. I suppose here is my thought on game four. 
whether they win this series or not, this is the ultimate gut check game. This is the ultimate gut check game because they are put in a position where they know if they lose this game, the series going back to Boston is essentially over. And they, they're coming off a game where they're specifically Harden, Maxi, a lot of guys on the team have been questioning whether they have it. Like whether, and it's such, this game would be such an easy game for them to quit and for them to go, you know what? We're down 2-1. This team's better than us. Odds are, like Vegas odds are, are very heavily in, in Boston's favor for this series, more heavily than any other series where the one team's up 2-1. So I don't know what will happen. I actually, this team, I've had less of a gut instinct of what they will do. I do know that the Celtics are not great at putting their foot on the other team's throat in terms of series. They never have been, even though they were in the finals last year. So I do think like the Celtics would be willing to lose this game, you know, like that, that if you have this monster and beat game and, and Jim, but, but I just like, I've seen James Harden look the way he looked in game three too many times. That's too many times I understand. to believe. In. Drops 45 in game one and then shows up like that in game three. It's maddening. And it, it was disheartening, that game three, because that was such a beautiful moment when Embiid won the MVP. It was one of the most beautiful moments in like my sports history, honestly, like yeah, watching top him. five, top yeah. five, maybe top three. Yeah. So heartfelt when he picked up his son. And uh, this is like, this is from a movie, you know, yeah. this, is, this was written for Hollywood almost. Yeah. Such a beautiful moment. And then for the, for him to have a dominant performance and deliver Yep. He won the MVP, and then he showed that he was MVP. I mean, the, yep. He blocked Tatum and and, uh, and Jalen Brown multiple times. I mean, those guys, they go to the rim. They're in trouble against him. Yep. For him to play so well, and then everyone else to let him down. Yep, everyone. Except for D'Anthony Melton. Except Melton Anthony. played well. I thought P.J. Tucker, once he got benched and came back out, P.J. Tucker was was there. Like those P.J. Two Tucker's guys the X-factor guy always, yep. even if he yep. doesn't have a big impact offensively. But for Harden to play like that and Maxi to kind of disappear and Tobias, that just really, that I'm still, it's upsetting, you know? Think about this. In games two and three, PJ Tucker has hit more threes than James Harden has. How is that possible? That's a fucking terrifying statistic, <laughs> That's man. scary. That's, that, that's beyond that's scary. Not great. And the scary thing for everybody else too. And by the way, you saw this in game six against Miami last night is like, not only was James Harden missing shots, you can miss shots. He was like shaken. He, he didn't want to. He didn't want to shoot. No, he was passing in the lane. He was like it was a when he had wide open layups. It was it was a it was a. He had a Ben really, Simmonsitis, I think. Yeah, yeah something like that. Let me ask you one question. One okay. million dollar question. I'm curious okay. what you think. If you take James Harden off this team and put Dame Lillard on this team, what is it? I've been uh, thinking about this a lot. I like Lillard better than Harden. I'm a little worried that Lillard is a player who's, who's like, he's a, a small guard. Him and Maxi in the backcourt is a, a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. It's hard to win with two small guards that way. But the other thing is like his entire game is based on quickness and explosiveness. And you don't age, like at some point at, at 33, 34 years old, they, James, Dame Lillard is just going to wake up one day and is just not going to have that That anymore. quick first step. Look what's happened yeah. to Harden. Yeah. Yeah, and Harden's game, by the way, not even 
totally based on that. Um, and I actually think Harden, Harden is in better position to evolve because he's such a fantastic passer and Dame's a good passer, but he's not like what Harden is. So I, I think the minute where they should have gone for Dame Lillard is probably, we're probably two years past that. I'm just worried because I feel like if they don't win this series, it's sort of the end of something. You know, feels like it, or maybe it's the beginning of something, or maybe it's the beginning of something. You got to find someone to pair with Embiid to like get us to the promised land. Yeah, it's it doesn't feel like it's James Harden. <laughs> no, it's I think that's a foregone conclusion at this yeah. point. But. We'll see. So there's your Sixers part of Carl. Man, this was quite part. an arc to this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of George enough. Michael, Sixers, Mad Lib, Your Old Troop, Deftones, Clockwork Orange, Clockwork Orange, Eyes yeah. Wide Shut, Eyes Wide Shut, a lot of shit, a lot Man. of shit. <laughs> don't don't be expecting all this stuff if you're if this is your first time. Usually, don't get into all this. Um, all right, we'll talk to you next time. We're done. Stay free, my goose.